this week on the Backtable Podcast. I went in and got through my pitch. And sure enough, one of the initial questions was about our regulatory approach. And there were several people in the room who had commercialized medical devices in the past and had been through FDA with these devices. And very quickly, they just picked holes in our regulatory strategy. And I didn't have the depth of expertise to even really maintain an intelligent conversation. It was very difficult to stand up there and, you know, have all these holes picked. But it was a very important lesson for me to go back and understand all of the nuances of payments, regulation, different stakeholders in healthcare. And, you know, over time, I got much, much better at that and, and pitches went much more smoothly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you're going to hear stories from entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Nashville and co-founder of an early stage imaging company in the pulmonary space. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest this week, Dr. James Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is a serial entrepreneur, radiation oncologist, and also chief medical officer at Veris Health. He's been CEO of two medical device companies, Redsmith and Oncodisc, which were acquired by BD and Veris Health, which is a subsidiary of PubMed, respectively. With that, James, it's so great to have you on the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Brian, it's great to be here, and thanks for the opportunity. Really looking forward to this talk. Yeah, same here, same here. So uh, why don't you start off, tell us a little bit about yourself. I understand you're in the military, correct? That's right. Yeah. So um, as you said, I'm a radiation oncologist. I live now in the San Francisco Bay Area. But uh, yeah, I grew up all over the South and I went to college at the Air Force Academy. Uh, so I studied physics at the Air Force Academy. I originally went there. Cool. I thought I wanted to be a pilot. Um, oh, wow. But while I was there, I you know kind of reassessed my priorities and realized that uh, I was really drawn to medicine. So I was one of only a handful of students from my graduating class at the Air Force Academy to go straight to medical school after graduating from the academy. So I wow. went down to Tulane and uh, did my medical school training at Tulane and finished there in 2003. Uh, when I chose to go into the match for radiation oncology, I got a deferment from the military for my specialty training. Uh, so I matched up at NYU and spent five great years in New York City, did my internship at Bellevue Hospital in internal medicine. Oh, wow. And then uh, did four years of radiation oncology training at NYU. And then that's when I uh, rejoined the Air Force. I had a commitment for my medical school and my undergrad. So I went down to South Mississippi to Biloxi. Uh, that was my first Air Force assignment where a colleague and I built the first radiation oncology clinic at Keesler Air Force Base uh, after Hurricane Katrina. So the prior hospital had been destroyed by Katrina and oh uh, we were sent there to rebuild the cancer program. Uh, I spent four years doing that, caring for uh, largely veterans along the Gulf Coast, uh, and then got transferred out to Travis Air Force Base in Northern California, 
uh, that's what brought me to California and uh, still here today. Oh, that is awesome. That's such an interesting experience. So you, you've been around and you've seen some things. So what was your first foray into business? When did you think you maybe wanted to be an entrepreneur or interested in business? Yeah, so the entrepreneur concept uh, came much later, but I initially became interested in business in college, really. And this was... In the Air Force Academy. Uh, right. I started investing my own money in stock, uh, you know, publicly traded companies. Uh, you know, some of this came from, you know, some family members who uh, also had an interest in investing. And so, you know, I bought my first stock when I was in college. And I spent many, many years studying businesses to become a better investor. Uh, I wanted to really understand what I was doing, not just trading ticker symbols based on what's in the news, but really understanding the underlying businesses, really understanding what was going to drive the growth of stock over time. Uh, wow. So I taught myself accounting so I could learn how to read financial statements and read SEC filings. Uh, wow. I read every single one of Warren Buffett's annual okay. letters to his there shareholders. There you go. That's where it comes from. He and yeah, yeah. Charlie Munger, right? And, you know, Benjamin Graham disciples. That's right. Yeah, I read all of those books that you know that that they learned from the intelligent investor. I'm e sure exactly. That's right. Security analysis, intelligent investor. But I also wanted to learn a lot about the people behind businesses, both the good and the bad. So. Uh, I spent time reading books about Enron, uh, oh, wow. reading books about the fall of long-term capital management, hedge fund, and uh, trying to understand the where where you know hubris and greed might get in the way of uh, running a solid business. And so, so, so really, that's where my my interest in business came from was was from that experience as an individual investor. Uh, the entrepreneur thing came much later. I am so impressed that you went, so not a lot of people go the fundamentals route when you're in college and you don't have experience in business. Not many people are pulling out, you know, SEC filings and saying, let me try to really understand this business. Cause that's, I mean, I guess that's exactly what somebody like Warren Buffett would say to do, but you did that. Then that's, so do you feel like you were pretty competent with accounting and reading financial statements by the end of that? Enough to do what I wanted to do, which was to, you know, understand enough to where uh, I could get a rough valuation of a business and, and you know, understand if there was financial health to that company. Um, you know, not enough to be an auditor or <laughs> anything even close to that, um, but certainly enough to be competent in, in what I wanted to do. Man, that's that's super cool. I, I'm jealous of that that knowledge you have there. I need to dig back into some of those books uh, and take a look at them. So tell me, how did you parlay this into uh, medical devices? When did you when did you first think about innovating in the in the healthcare space? Yeah, so I would really credit my my co-founder with with sparking that in a lot of ways. So when I was a radiation oncologist uh, here in the Air Force in California, Travis Air Force Base. I worked very closely with uh, an interventional radiologist named Andy Thorson, uh, and he and I would go in, go on to be co-founders at Redsmith and co-founders at Oncodisc. And we just through, you know, kind of hanging out and um, spending time together, realized that we both 
shared an interest in business and investing. We were both, you know, individual investors. And we also realized that we had a shared interest in uh, kind of a rich understanding of uh, all of the aspects of what we were doing in our job and trying to innovate ways to improve the tools that we were using in the hospital in medicine. And uh, so he actually approached me one day and asked me if I'd ever had any interest in developing an electoral property and doing some early stage med device development. He had worked as an engineer at uh, Guidant uh, in Minneapolis before going into medicine. Guidant. And s- Guidant's everywhere, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. You, you hear disciples of Guidant, uh, you know, they've gone on to do great things, I feel like. That's right. <laughs> it had yeah. a big impression on a lot of people, I think, right. right, in the med tech world, Silicon Valley, for sure. Right. And so, so when he approached me with that idea, uh, honestly, it was not something that I had given much thought to, but we started talking about some of the great ideas that we were developing and uh, it sparked this uh, interest and uh, creativity that, you know, I felt like was um, not really there in my day-to-day practice. I can totally understand that. And so what did you guys do? Did you have ideas already or some ideas were kind of bouncing around and, and you were saying, who was it that first said, maybe we should file some patents on this? Yeah, so it, that that realization came somewhat jointly, and uh, we had a couple of ideas that predated this conversation. And so, you know, as we as we started to cultivate those ideas, we realized that we needed a place to put those. That you know, and and some of this kind of came from our own background of just studying how businesses work and and studying how how to cultivate intellectual property and other products that you know you want to do that within a corporate entity rather than as individuals um, and so you know the whole the whole process really started off as a place to put intellectual property and to kind of dabble in development and then it it, it kind of took off and grew from there and it was really you know those two or three ideas that we had tossed around before the idea of launching a startup ever came around. Okay. So I, I, we've heard that before, having an entity, uh, another guest said the same thing, having an entity so that you can, ass- basically what you're doing is assigning your patent rights to that entity, I assume, correct? That's right. Okay. So that way, just for our, for our listeners, why would you do something like that? Yeah. So there are several legal reasons to do it that are, you know, depths are probably beyond my expertise, but uh, the, the real, so in the long term. As you protect that intellectual property, if it's assigned to an entity, it can prevent legal squabbles down the road over who truly owns that intellectual property. So if you have two or three inventors and you assign the IP to each inventor as an individual, 10 years down the road, one of those individuals could claim that you know, they are the true owner of it and they own all the rights and it's hard to go back in time and, you know, fix that. And so you have to then fight it out in court. Uh, Whereas if from the beginning you assign it to an entity and everybody understands that the entity is the owner of the intellectual property, 
then you avoid those arguments down the road. And where this can become really critical is if you ever go on to try to sell that IP, one, you know, you, you won't have one of the inventors coming out and, you know, trying to squash the deal. But the reality is that nobody's going to buy the IP yeah. if there's an individual out there that has a claim to it. Right. Each inventor has equal rights to a patent. So if one inventor wants to go and license it to somebody, then they can go and do that. That's correct. And, and that really, there's no cohesion. There's not a unified there's not a unified piece of intellectual property. It really is divided up by a bunch of people who may have different desires or, you know, they want different things out of, out of the patent rights. So I think that's a really important point for our listeners to know is that this is smart business. I think what, what, what James did and his, his, his partner deciding to put this into an entity is good corporate hygiene, you know, starting from the beginning. That's right. And by doing that, by going through that process, uh, we learned a lot about corporate structure and corporate governance as well, because, uh, you know, when we went to the lawyers and said, okay, you know, we want to start a company that we can assign this IP to, uh, there were many questions that fell out of that conversation. You know, what is the goal of this business? Do you ever want to go raise money? If you raise money, would that include venture capitalists? All of the there answers to those questions <laughs> determine what type of corporate entity are you going to start? Is exactly. it going to be an LLC? Is it going to be a C Corp, an S Corp? Where is it going to be domiciled? Where are you going to incorporate? And you know, the quick answer from the lawyers was, if you ever want to consider venture backing, then you need to create a Delaware C corporation because that is where the venture capitalists want their companies to be because of the laws around corporations in Delaware. And so, you know, the, just going through the process of setting up this entity, we learned all of these details about corporate governments and corporate formation. That's fantastic. And you know, I want to I want to hear a little bit about because that's so important what you mentioned here. I think the assigning the IP rights to an entity, the process of going through that means you're starting a company, which means you have to find out what kind of company do you want to be? C Corp, LLC. And the answer to that depends on what your goal is down the road. So that is uh, really, really important to reiterate. Now, the business ideas themselves, it sounded like you had a few ideas. How did you decide which one to proceed with? So we actually proceeded with several at the same time, which, uh, you know, in retrospect worked out for us, uh, but uh, it also drained our resources. And so, um, you know, I, I do think that looking back at, you know, some of the mistakes that we made along the way, uh, you know, pursuing multiple different projects at the same time, uh, you know, we were we were financing all of this on our own, and uh, you know, we got a little bit of you know family money as a seed investment as well, mm -hmm. uh, and, friends and family, right? And and by pursuing multiple projects at the same time, those those resources went much faster than we thought they would. Yep. So, but it it became it did become very clear. So, you know, we we were pursuing about three or four different ideas, you know, both with intellectual property and then also with early stage prototyping, testing and development. 
And it did become pretty clear which one of the few really had legs and seemed like it, it was feasible, um, you know, as we were getting prototypes and testing them. Uh, and that was a central venous catheter that we redesigned for rapid insertion under ultrasound guidance. This was an idea that actually was sparked by a conversation I had with my wife one evening. She's an emergency medicine doc. And, you know, we had already started this company and, you know, the idea of developing medical devices. And, and she'd had a shift where she had a really hard time getting a central line into an agitated, obese patient and, uh, you know, multiple different uh, instances of lost access. And, you know, typically during the exchange exchanges over the guide wire. And so, you know, we took that and reworked the existing kits and developed a way of essentially integrating needle and guide wire uh, into the catheter in a way that we eliminated the exchanges over the wire. This could really only be done if you're using ultrasound guidance uh, yep. so that you can visualize where uh, the access needle tip is. But, uh, but that was the one that ended up taking priority. Um, we got a granted patent for that design. We did multiple different prototypes. We did animal testing in pigs, and that was the technology that was ultimately purchased by BD. Awesome. Did you do any market analysis beforehand? I mean, you're a business, you, you clearly are business-minded, uh, but did you, did you look to see, is there a market here? Is this a need pull? Is this something that you figured there, there would be a need out there and people would pay for it? We did. So, you know, we knew that um, obviously these devices are being used every day, that there's existing reimbursement and existing workflow, existing inventory distribution. Um, so all that was really clear. We didn't have to do a whole lot of market research to get to that realization. We did research the market size because we, we did think that there was a possibility that we'd go out and get outside investment for this. So we knew that we right. needed to have a large enough addressable market to attract outside investment. And, you know, fortunately we had access to uh, a large group of docs, you know, our friends yep. and colleagues. And so we were able to talk to enough physicians to realize that, you know, if this technology was out there and it, you know, it, it worked as we advertised, uh, that people would probably use it. Now, you know, kind of looking back at the amount of market research and analysis that we did for OncoDisc, our second venture, uh, you know, this really paled in comparison to that. Okay. Um, but we, and, we, and we did it all on our own. We didn't, you know, go out and hire anybody to do this market research for us. Okay. But it's, it was still important. And so you went to, you were prototyping with a development group. Did you, did you guys hire a development group to help build kind of your first prototypes for you? We did. We did a lot of research into, you know, who out there makes catheters. And of those shops, who has an R&D, a contract R&D arm? Um, and this was, this was really an adventure for us because we, you know, we didn't have ties to this world. Uh, you know, Andy was far enough from working at Guidant that, you know, those connections weren't really warm. 
And so, so this was kind of starting from scratch, scouring the internet. And we ended up connecting with a company called Biomerics, which is headquartered in Salt Lake City. And okay. they make a lot of the central venous catheters that are sold, you know, under the name, under the big name. So they're a contract manufacturer okay, cool. for uh, a lot of catheter technology and they have a development arm as well. And we were able to connect with them and engage with them to develop our prototypes. Awesome. And then you had an introduction to uh, Bard at the time. Is that correct? We did. Yes. So, you know, through these connections that we built up um, at Biomerics and other people that we were meeting going through this process, uh, we got connected to the vascular access division of Bard, which is also in Salt Lake City. And, you know, we knew the market at this point, we, you know, and, and, and just from practicing medicine, we knew that Teleflex, uh, you know, was by and large the market leader in acute central venous catheters and that, you know, a lot of other big companies were kind of chasing at their heels. Uh, and one of those is Bard. Bard has a lot of really amazing technology, um, but they, you know, never were able to really catch Teleflex in the central venous catheter market. So. They were definitely a company that we wanted to talk to. So when we got the chance for the introduction, we jumped at it. And you spoke with them and were they ready to buy right then? They were definitely interested and excited about the technology, but uh, they did not write us a check right then by any means. Okay. So what had to be done? What did they say needed to be done before they would move forward? Yeah. So a lot of it was internal analysis that they needed to do looking at their own technology because they, uh, you know, like any other big medical device company, they have continuous R&D going on at any time. And so, you know, when they look at external projects, they have to compare that to their internal projects and prioritize those. And so, so we, we started off with a phone call and uh, then we had a presentation to a bigger group. Uh, and then a couple months later, they invited us out to their facility. And we presented to some of their leadership in person. Uh, we brought our pro prototypes. We had, you know, a, a well-researched deck to show to them. And then they gave us a tour of their facility, which was really amazing. And then, you know, we left that meeting uh, thinking, oh, this is, you know, this, this was an amazing meeting. This is great. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to do this deal. It's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then two years later, we still had not closed that deal. Okay. <laughs> so. And what are you doing during this time? Yeah. Are you still producing or, or like developing or testing or, or, or what? Yeah. So, so we were still doing some work on this project, but our pace slowed quite a bit for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was that, you know, I think our hopes of, of getting this deal done, you know, we focused our efforts and energy on kind of cultivating that relationship rather than driving headlong into further R&D. But we also, you know, with this, you know, <laughs> constant stream of ideas coming in, yep. Um, yep. we started working on the concept that would ultimately become OncoDisc. Um, and okay. so, so we were also kind of juggling multiple projects at the time, but what was happening on their side was 
you know, not only were they doing this internal analysis, but about three months after our meeting, there was a public announcement that Bard was being acquired by BD. Mm. And <laughs> we knew that that was going to delay uh, yeah. anything we were going to do with them. And so our business development contacts on their side kept us warm and said, hey, guys, we really, you know, we still want to do this deal, but we have to let the dust settle from our acquisition first. And, and so once that dust settled, uh, we did uh, ultimately uh, sell that technology to them. But it was a long, long road and a long drawn out conversation with them. Well, you know, that still sounds like a huge win, no matter how you slice it. So that's awesome. So that's a great segue into, and let's clarify, this was a product. You always viewed this as something that would fit into the the bag of the salesperson who was already at a large company. You weren't planning on selling this on your own, correct? That's right. That's right. We, we set out to develop a product that uh, we could sell or license to a bigger company like Bard and, you know, get it out there in the hands of clinicians and hopefully generate an income stream through royalties. That was that initial goal. Okay. And then when, when Oncodisc, the idea was being hatched, how was this different? So Oncodisc was our second big venture and through our experience at Redsmith, we realized if we went farther, if we actually built a company and a business out of this technology, then we could have more influence over the final product and how that would impact patients and doctors and the healthcare system. Uh, but also that, you know, the long-term upside from building a business, um, you know, financial upside, professional upside, satisfaction, um, that all of that just is much bigger and on a much greater scale than selling a product. And so that's what we set out to do. We also realized that what we were working on at Oncodisc um, was just a much bigger vision than the products we were working on at Redsmith. We were integrating multiple different technologies. Um, The addressable markets were huge and the ability to have a lasting impact on medicine was much bigger. Maybe you can dig in a little bit and tell us uh, what is is the vision for Oncodisc? Yeah, so we started off with Oncodisc by uh, addressing a need that we were seeing every day, which was the fact that so many of our cancer patients were ending up in the hospital, ending up in the ICU, and you know sometimes even dying of complications that we thought were completely preventable or potentially treatable if we knew what was going on sooner. You know, we'd have numerous conversations about, you know, Miss so-and-so who ended up in the ICU with sepsis, but, you know, we talked to her family and realized that, you know, she'd had a febrile episode five days before she ended up in the ICU, but nobody knew about that except for the family. And we had no way of having an early warning system that would tell us what was going on with patients. Now, this is not a new problem. There's a 
ton of data in the oncology literature uh, showing that this is a problem with outpatient episodic cancer care. There are, uh, you know, health economic studies about the economic impact of this. But despite that, there is not a good, reliable tool that we can use in everyday clinical practice to address this issue. And so that's what we set out to do. We had a bit of a unique approach to this because Andy is an IR doc implants vascular access ports all the time. And, you know, all of my patients have them in place. And so, you know, we kind of put this together uh, with this need and realized, you know, if we could get the port to tell us something, you know, it's sitting there inside a patient at all times. If we could get it to tell us what's going on, then, you know, one, we get incredible insights with accurate physiologic data because we're inside the body, but also we wouldn't have to worry about the challenges of patient adherence with, you know, any other kind of in-home or wearable technology. And so, so that was kind of the original concept. But as we progressed, we realized that there's an entire digital health software and data analytics side of this solution that can drive insights that are much bigger than, you know, just a connected device. And so, so that, that really launched this foray into uh, getting into software development, understanding user interface, user design, understanding workflow uh, with the EHR, and also getting into data science and, you know, learning how we can extract insights from data. Uh, and so, you know, the vision really became big quickly as we realized that we could really develop a, a platform applicable to all levels of cancer care. Wow. Okay. So describe that pivot. I'm going to call it a pivot. It maybe isn't a pivot in the traditional sense, but it sounds like the vision expanded from, let me try to reiterate what you said. So it's basically a smart port that can notify you maybe if you're you're starting to have an infection, if you've got a white blood cell count, or if your blood pressure's dropping, or if your body temperature's going up. What was the original data that you were going for uh, with the port? So it started off really simple, actually. We were okay. thinking, you know, we could have some patient identifying information, we could have some information about their treatment, and we could gather body temperature data. Okay. And we, temperature. And we thought that, you know, temperature would give us great, you know, that alone would give us good insight into Absolutely. the risk of infection, febrile neutropenia. And then that expanded into things like heart rate and okay. motion. One of the most okay. critical risk stratification met metrics in cancer care is performance status. And today, performance status assessments are embarrassingly subjective. And so, you know, we realized, wow, we can use all of this objective data to create an objective performance status score. And so that all happened pretty early on. And so, you know, th those were some of the parameters that we kind of landed on early. But you're, you're right. It was the whole pivot was more of an evolution than, than a pivot that happened suddenly. Yeah. But that's the way it happens, I think, a lot of times is you start with a vision, whatever it is, you aim towards it and you move with rapid pace. Right. And when you start going in that direction, you learn more than you, than you knew before. 
and you don't realize that you're going to learn even more you know, every step you take, you're going to be able to see further and further. It's like going up a mountain, you know, you're going up sand dunes and you can see further and further away when you get to the top of those sand dunes. And I see that happen all the time. You know, lots of companies will start off with a smaller vision. Our goal was just to do this. And then we found out, oh my gosh, this much larger opportunity is here. And it sounds like as your experience gets better and better as a business person, as an entrepreneur, you start to recognize these things probably earlier and earlier where these opportunities lie. That's right. And you start to think bigger and wider. And, you know, some okay. of the realizations that we came to through this growth process that you described was that, you know, this doesn't even need to be specific for cancer care. You know, there are a lot of disorders and diagnoses and patients out there that have Similar scenario, episodic outpatient care, but a high risk of complications and hospitalization, patients on dialysis, patients with CHF. And so, you know, realizing that there's a much bigger scope than even just cancer care, which is, you know, obviously a huge problem, uh, I think was also part of that evolution within us as business developers. Awesome. And what other markets were you expanding into or where did you start looking to? Because that's what I think you mean when you say think wider, just to take your words and kind of abstract that a little bit. You're talking about expanding into other markets as well. Where else could this be impactful? Right. So the, the two that we have our sights on initially are the ones that I mentioned, the end-stage renal disease market, yep. um, patients on hemodialysis and patients with you know, advanced cardiovascular disorders, um, most largely CHF, um, but, you know, we could look at other, you know, kind of chronic arrhythmia patients, et cetera. So those, those are the two big ones. Um, but, you know, we, we now have a constant eye and ear open to other areas and we get approached by people from time to time. Uh, you know, I, I pitched our company to a group out of UCSF and afterwards, a pediatric gastroenterologist approached me and said, you know, this technology would be great for kids with short gut syndrome who are on TPN. They have vascular access requirements and they're always getting septic and we don't have a good tool to monitor them. So uh, we're always listening when people approach us with those ideas. That's awesome. And tell me at the beginning, in the early days, did you know you wanted to, so you were CEO at this point, I assume. And did you know you wanted to build a team, fundraise, uh, you know, what was that whole process like? Yes. So, you know, when, when we made the decision to start OncoDisc uh, and I started off as founder CEO, that was the vision uh, that we were going to build a company, build a team. We were going to seek investment and, uh, you know, we were going to take this company to a state of commercialization. Okay. And what did, how did you do that? What were the mechanics of that? Uh, were you building pitch decks and going out and did you say, we're going to raise a seed fund of, you know, a million dollars and, and that's what it's going to get us. And you set up milestones and, uh, how did that process look? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so we started off with, uh, you know, some of our own 
funding, you know, personal finances going into the business. Um, that happens a lot. I'm going to just say that for our listeners. I hear that a lot uh, that, you know, it's almost like getting your own skin in the game, bootstrapping, right. if you will. It's very important for a number of reasons. Uh, one is, you know, when your own resources are at stake, <laughs> that it, 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 it lights that fire and that drive. But also, I was asked by many, many investors over the years, how much of your money did you put into this? Um, when you seek outside investment, you know, it's, it, it's, I think, reassuring to outside investors, if you believe in the business enough that you're willing to put your own money at stake in the company. So we started off with that. We did get uh, grant funding as well. We applied for an SBIR grant through the NSF and we awesome. got a phase one SBIR awesome. grant. So that's a $225,000 grant. And so that's what really kind of got us off the ground. And then we set out to raise a seed round and okay. we set out to raise a million dollars in a seed round. And this was going to be used to do mostly R and D, uh, although, you know, we prototyping, right. Prototyping, testing, and we did set aside some money for business function as well. Um, so this is, you know, management of an IP portfolio, management of our cap table, hiring of new people, uh, all of that stuff costs money, but we were not paying ourselves anything. So, so that was not to, yes. part of the uh, expense plan. <laughs> Got it. No, I think that's also important to know that you can go either way. Some people will pay themselves a salary, but it depends, you know, would you rather have that money going to you or going to the company where it can grow? Right. Exactly. So we set out to raise a million dollars. We actually raised 1.2. Okay. We largely raised our seed round from friends and colleagues. Um, so we went and talked to a lot of oncologists but other physicians that, you know, we knew who could understand what we were doing, who, you know, could quickly see how this technology could fit into their own practice. And, um, and so we, we raised most of our, our seed round from other physicians, which accomplished a couple of things for us. Obviously it, it got us the financing we needed, but it also created a de facto advisory board for us. Where, you know, if we had questions about clinical utility of certain features or needed a little bit of guidance, you know, any of these investors who are physicians would immediately pick up the phone and talk to us. And then also when we would talk to outside investors that we didn't know, you know, it was reassuring also to see that, oh, you've got, you know, 20 oncologists invest investing in your, in your business. Well, you know. That's reassuring. And, you know, they would sometimes end up calling some of them and talking to them. So that was very helpful. But we did also go out and raise some money from, uh, you know, kind of your traditional angel networks. So, you know, we pitched to Life Science Angels, Band of yep. Angels, Health Tech Capital, uh, those groups that invest in early stage med tech companies and have a lot of deep domain expertise as well. And how did that work out? Did any of them end up investing? We did. We got an investment from Health Tech Capital. 
they were the only angel group that uh, did invest, but we made it through kind of all of the pitch rounds yep. uh, with the other angel groups, which uh, left us That's with some battle wounds. Yep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that, please. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, made us and our pitch much better. Right. And so, you know, I, what this what this came back to was, you know, one of the things that you know, I, I learned on the, along the way, which was to, you know, kind of be aware of and always look for your own blind spots. And so what I mean by that is, uh, you know, coming into a, a med tech startup as a physician, you know, as a specialist even, you know, so, you know, I've got over a decade of experience practicing oncology. This is a cancer related technology that we're developing. I know everything about cancer. That was kind of right. my mindset. Yeah. Right? And your partner knows everything about uh, place and ports. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so. And so it, it's so it's easy to um, come in and, and think that, you know, by practicing in many different settings. Right. I, you know, we all train in academics. I had worked in the government setting. I'd worked for a couple of years in private practice at this point as well. Um, so, you know, it's easy to think that, you know, oh, I, I know the business of medicine too, right? I understand mm -hmm. reimbursement. It's I understand. easy to make that jump. Right. Uh, yeah. That bias. There's a type of bias. I keep, I keep forgetting about what this is, but you know, you think you're an expert in one domain and it applies to another domain because they're tangentially related. Right. Exactly. And so what I didn't realize and what I've learned since is that there is a depth to payment and payers and reimbursement and regulatory oversight that goes far beyond what we see every day in clinical practice. And if you have a superficial understanding of those disciplines and then go and stand in front of a room of people who have spent their careers in those disciplines, um, <laughs> they're going to pick you apart immediately. It's, uh, you know, like being an intern on rounds with, you know, the, the cardiac team and you barely understand cardiovascular diseases. Uh, and then, you know, two sentences into presenting a patient, you just get picked apart. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so very similar experience. Um, and so specific. Pimping. That's what it right, is. You got, right, you, exactly. you got pimped. So I remember very specifically going to pitch to, to one of these groups and I had actually been, so I was still practicing part-time at this point and I had had a day where, you know, I, I had seen many patients that I, I knew could benefit from this technology. And I was really fired up to go in there and, you know, tell this story. And, you know, one of the things that I knew we were going to have to talk about was our regulatory approach. And, you know, at that point we had done some diligence on a regulatory approach, but it was superficial. And it seemed logical to us that we would have a really straightforward approach to getting a lot of features cleared in one shot because, you know, the, the, the platform that we were building seemed logical and simple to us. You know, we're going to take a technology that patients are already getting, and we're going to add the ability to monitor 
what we saw is really basic physiologic data that, you know, a third year med student knows how to interpret and use to make clinical decisions. Yeah. And so I went in and, you know, got through my pitch and sure enough, one of the initial questions was about our regulatory approach. And there were several people in the room who had commercialized medical devices in the past and had been through FDA with these devices. And very quickly, they just picked holes in our regulatory strategy. And I didn't have the depth of expertise to even really maintain an intelligent conversation. Oh, man. And, and so it was very difficult to stand up there and, you know, have all these holes picked. But it was a very important lesson for me to go back and really understand all of the nuances of payments, regulation, different stakeholders in healthcare. And, you know, over time, I got much, much better at that and, and pitches went much more smoothly. But yeah, I, I still sometimes have, have some bad dreams about that experience. That's <laughs> <laughs> just like med school. Uh, it, it, it totally is. Right. Uh, so it, it's a great way to stress test and iterate your ideas. You know, I will, I will second that. Pitches, I found that the first, however many pitches you give, 10, it doesn't matter, five or 10, you will probably get torn apart. And there are going to be a lot of things that you're like, why don't these guys get this? Right. Uh, this is, this feels so obvious. You know, of course it's going to go this way, right? I mean, we're, we're clinicians. We know what we're talking about. And you realize that these same questions will keep coming up. And at that point, when you start seeing repetition, or at least in my experience, when you start seeing criticisms repeated, you really have to pay attention and say, okay, is it, is it, is it really them or is it me? Uh, is it, is it us that's kind of missing something and it forces you to be introspective and that can make your pitches so much stronger by getting that feedback. Absolutely. It's one of the best ways to learn how to build your business and how to tell your story is to just get out there and do it and listen to the feedback you're getting. And I think it's really easy to get defensive, but if you listen to the feedback that you're getting every time it gets better and better and better. And, you know, one of the, one of the kind of unique aspects of pitching to investors as a clinician entrepreneur is that it's very rare that you're going to be pitching to other clinicians. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes, right. sometimes there might be a clinician in the room, but by and large, these investors are going to be people who come from business or they come from the FDA or they come from payers or health systems or healthcare administration. And so their expertise is going to be in your weak areas. Um, and so you really have to prepare for that, but it provides an amazing opportunity to learn. And I found that, you know, most most people who will, you know, take a meeting with you and listen to your pitch are actually really helpful. They want to help, even if they don't invest, they want to give advice and get you going on the right path. And I've gotten to the point where, you know, I, I, I have our pitch down and, uh, you know, people will sometimes even say, you know, like, you know, your pitch sounds great, um, yep. but 
you know, what, what maybe they don't know is that, you know, I did over 120 pitches to venture investors trying to raise money. So. Oh, that's incredible. I love that statistic. 120 pitches. I think that's very valuable. And that's how, okay, here's the, the analogy of the day. It's basically like how rocks can become so smooth over time, just from water running over them. And it's like, it just shapes your pitch from all of the people that have rubbed up against it uh, in one way or another over over time. It just shapes your pitch into something that is rock solid. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned, I wanted to talk about the flip side of being a physician, a clinician who has expertise in a clinical specialty or anybody who comes from a clinical background. When you're pitching to investors, if they aren't clinical at all, not only are they going to have expertise in other things like James mentioned, regulatory, reimbursement, commercialization, they won't have the clinical knowledge that you have. So you have to tailor your pitch to non-clinical people. And, you know, from what I've seen, many times you have to go well below what you ever thought was possible in terms of using clinical jargon. I mean, you almost need to start at cancer is bad. Cancer is bad and can cause infection. Infection needs, if you catch it early, you can do something about it. That's what we're going to do at Oncodisc. You know, it's like you have to, you know, you have to dumb it down, I think is the, what I'm trying to say. And I don't know if you encountered that at all uh, at the beginning or when you were doing any of your pitches, but I found that I'm pitching sometimes at a level that is like, you know, way too clinical, like as if I was position, uh, pitching to a physician. I totally agree with that. Uh, so, and in fact, I think if you're too clinical and use too much jargon, it turns people mm -hmm. off. Definitely. So this is where I think having years of clinical experience can help because in a lot of ways, I found these conversations to be similar to talking to patients and their families where, you know, you're in a sense, you're educating and maybe even persuading patients and their families that you know, a certain pathway for treatment is best or most appropriate, but, you know, the vast majority of those patients and families don't have come from clinical medicine as well. But I, I felt that having years of experience, having those conversations with patients and families made it easier for me to then have these pitch discussions with non-clinical investors. That is a perfect analogy. I can definitely see how explaining this to a patient when you're trying to say you're, you never want to use jargon, you want things to be very easily understood, simple sentences, because a lot of times the information they're absorbing is a lot and it, and it has a lot of implications in, in the same way. But you also just want to be crystal clear with what you're saying. You almost want, and, and it sounds like you simplify things. Uh, and then maybe that's really the best way of saying it, is you have to s reduce down this complex information into its simplest form possible. That's right. Absolutely. And by doing that, it also forces you to better understand your own business, your own mission and your own story, because 
it's much, much harder to distill a vision down to two sentences than three paragraphs. Without a doubt. And it becomes very obvious because you, you just become frustrated. I think I find myself getting frustrated when I can't communicate it the way that I want to. And it just means you haven't gone far enough down the reduction pathway. Right. Reducing it down to its most elemental. Right. But that's what comes from people giving you feedback. I think when you get feedback, you start realizing where some of your gaps are and where you can simplify or even get rid of. Because I find that most of my pitches, they just shrink as time goes on. They don't really expand. I mean, you keep an appendix set of slides in the back that always is growing. But the primary pitch and message sometimes seems to get simpler, fewer words, more pictures, you know, just more of a visual than a, than, than an explosion of information on pages. That's right. Yeah. The best pitch decks in the world are like six to eight slides with two words on each slide. Which is incredible. You're like, how can you convey such complex information asking for, you know, $20 million, but they do it. Right. And that just shows, I think it also is a bit of a test on you as the founder to how well you can boil this complex idea down to simple ideas and solutions. That's right. Yep. Man. Okay. No, this is good stuff. So let me ask you, are you still practicing? I kind of want to understand how, well, well, why don't you take us through OncoDisc, uh, you raised some funding and then you got to, you were acquired and, and what was that process like? And you know, how did, how did your life change in terms of clinical work? Yeah. So during the early days of the pandemic, I set out, you know, we had reached a point where it was time to go raise our next round of financing and series A. Right. So we, we, we set out to raise an A round and the goal of the A round was really to raise enough financing to get us through FDA clearance and have a small commercial launch. And then we figured okay. we'd go out and raise a B. Limited launch. Right. Yep. <laughs> and then we'd use that to raise a B round to scale the business. And so we, you know, because it was the pandemic, we uh, set up all of these meetings virtually, which I think was good and bad. Um, it allowed us to not have to travel and still meet with investors from all around the globe. So... You know, we get up at 6, 7 a.m. West Coast time. We'd have meetings with investors in Europe and then mid-morning East Coast and then late in the afternoon West Coast. So it allowed us to, to, to really meet a lot of investors. But I do think that, you know, you lose some of that personal connection without face-to-face meetings with investors that facilitate getting an investment done. Because at the end of the day, the investors are investing in you as business leaders. And so, so there's a little bit of a challenge there. But despite that, you know, we set out to raise at least $5 million. Um, We were hoping to get, you know, seven plus. And we had about half of the round committed. We were making good headway in our fundraising process. How long did you budget for that to take? Yeah, so we budgeted nine to 12 months and we were... Uh, probably seven to eight months into the process when I met PavMed. Okay. So, but we knew that it was, you know, we expected this is probably going to be a year long process to raise this round. Okay. 
I think that's a really good point to make is that it does take a long time to raise serious rounds of money, especially a Series A. Yes. Uh, especially if it's your first time doing it. Yes. And I think that probably plays a role as well. Okay. And so tell me, did you, so you're developing quite the network around this time, uh, it, it sounds like. Uh, is that something that changed over the years? Yes. So like most clinicians, when we started this process, our professional network was largely made up of doctors, nurses, you know, other people who work in medicine. And, you know, we didn't have a network that included engineers, finance professionals, attorneys, corporate attorneys, IP attorneys, um, regulatory experts, you know, all of these people and areas of expertise that are required to get a product, uh, you know, any kind of medical product through research and development and into commercialization. And then, you know, we also didn't have the network of commercialization experts, you know, people who sell technology. So the past decade, I'd say a, a lot of what I've been doing is expanding my network and meeting all of these people, connecting with people with all of these areas of expertise and, you know, ultimately working with a lot of people, whether, you know, trying to hire them. Consulting or, right. or so full-time consulting. employees or just advice or advisory. Right. Advisor roles, all, all of those. And so that has really taken probably eight to 10 years to build that network to the point where I now feel like almost any question that comes up, I have, you know, at least two or three people that I can reach out to and get an answer to that question quickly. Uh, you know, as where when we were starting this, that might have taken months to find somebody with that expertise. You know, some of the some of this is just being out there, boots on the ground, yeah, doing the work and meeting the people in these spaces. But there are some organizations out there that can, you know, facilitate network building. Um, you know, some of the ones that I found really useful uh, include the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs and mm, uh, yeah. a, a, an organization called Innovator MD, which is out here in the Bay Area. But we also at Oncodisc, we went through a couple of accelerator programs that also, you know, was like adding rocket fuel to our networking. So we went through the UCSF Rosenman Institute accelerator program, and then we went through the MedTech Innovator accelerator program. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so expand your network. I think I think growing your network so that you hit the nail on the head, so that you can get questions answered quickly, and you can also find people who can help you build value in your company. So let's circle back. So you were acquired, and now are you still, I do want to answer the question about practicing real quick. You are still a clinician. Now tell me, are you still practicing? Would you ever give up entirely your clinical practice, or would you advise that? So me personally, I'm not ready to completely give up clinical medicine. So I do very little clinical medicine right now, but I do enough to, you know, kind of maintain my proficiency, maintain my license and credentials, but it's largely coverage. You know, I, I do some locum coverage for Locums, yeah. uh, groups here in the Bay Area that I've worked with who have been enormously accommodating <laughs> to my unique scenario. Uh, <laughs> so, 
That's a pretty recent development. Uh, through most of my time as uh, you know, founder and CEO of Oncodisc, I was doing regular two to three day a week clinical practice where you know I had my own uh, service, my own panel of patients, um, and this was ongoing. There were a few reasons for doing this. Uh, one was I was not paying myself at Oncodisc, and so you know it, I needed some income. But also, as a physician, being able to practice medicine is, I don't, I don't want to call it, you know, something that you can fall back on. But if you lose that option, that has serious implications on your professional future if your startup doesn't pan out. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley, and so you know, in the, in the epicenter of tech startups. And, you know, I think about software engineers or data scientists or other, you know, tech oriented people, you know, if they go out and start a startup and that's essentially what they're doing is, you know, developing tech products and leading tech teams, you know, if the startup fails for whatever reason, then, you know, those professionals have been doing what they're trained to do, and they can go keep doing that somewhere else. But if you completely leave clinical medicine and you let your credentials lapse, you let your board certification lapse, and you know your, your startup doesn't make it, well, now it's almost impossible to go back and practice medicine again. And so, you know, this might be fine for uh, clinicians who are ready to move on and do something else for, you know, they just are done practicing medicine for whatever reason. But I, I'm not at that point. I haven't reached that point. I still enjoy clinical oncology. And so, so I've, I've kept that going. That's awesome. I think it's, a, it's, it's really important to, I think there are ways as clinicians, uh, no matter what you're in, to also stress test your company and, and continue earning a living while you're doing this, uh, while you're exploring a startup life. So you always have something to come back to. And I think that's, that's, it's at least one advantage of being a clinician. There will always be some opportunities to continue working as a clinician while you grow. And you can also hire a team to help you with your startup as well. No one says you have to do this on your own as well. That, that's absolutely right. And, you know, very early on, um, I had the pleasure of getting on the phone with someone who's really kind of been a hero to me for a long time, who's it's John Adler. Oh, so wow. as, yep. you know, as a radiation oncologist, um, John Adler is a neurosurgeon uh, who is inventor of the CyberKnife and Cyberknife, founder right, of yeah. Accuray and talked quite a bit about, you know, being a physician entrepreneur. And he's now on his second big company, Zap Surgical. Yeah. But he told me he just stopped operating two years ago. He was faculty neurosurgeon at Stanford. Um, and he told me it pained him to, to give that up. But he finally reached a point where he realized uh, he had to move on. Uh, but, you know, he's much farther into his career than I, than I am. And, and he was able to keep that going as a neurosurgeon. That is a great example of somebody who just, you know, well, he also probably loved it. And maybe staying so close to clinical medicine is what allowed him also to to be such an innovator. Right, right, yeah. Which we we talked about before. Yeah, I find that, uh, you know, the, the days when I am 
in the clinic or in the hospital, it brings a lot of ideas to the forefront. It also makes me think about honing what we're doing um, so that it fits with what I'm seeing there in the clinic. Awesome. Well, that is a lot of time we have spent. And uh, if you will permit me, I'm going to go through a summary uh, briefly of everything we've, we've not everything, a lot of the things that we've spoken about just to kind of wrap them up and kind of put a bow on them. And if I say anything that you want to intervene on, just jump in. So one of the first things we talked about was why assign IP to an entity like a company? And the reason being multiple inventors. Basically, if there are multiple inventors, you need to have that single ownership that everybody agrees goes to a company. And that's important for raising funds, being acquired, basically being in agreement of what you're going to do with that intellectual property. And it can also lead to questions on corporate governance. Uh, so lead to attorneys, which will set things up and they'll ask you questions. Do you want to be a C-Corp, uh, an LLC, which most often you're going to want to be a C-Corp if you're interested in raising venture funding. But those are the types of good, that's good corporate hygiene that can be started just at the beginning because you made a good idea to put your IP into a company or excuse me. Yeah. Into a separate entity. Next, leverage your clinical network to evaluate potential clinical needs. I love that. You know, I never really, you, you take it for advantage, uh, you take advantage of it, take it for granted, but your large physician network is a great way to stress test your ideas, get that early feedback and also potential investors you mentioned. When pitching a product to a large company, it takes a lot of time. As you said, you thought you guys were on the fast track to being acquired and two years later before you were acquired at Redsmith. And to me, that's still quick, but, <laughs> but you know, you had a lot of uh, things come up that you can't control. Uh, Bard was acquired by BD. I'm sure there was role changes. There were priority changes, but you know, you're actually pretty fortunate they stuck in that going in that direction because I've seen some people say where the it, it goes the opposite direction. They change people and personnel and their vision changes. So, you know, but it still takes a long time. And and I think that's something to just kind of get in your head and, and just understand that. Start with a vision. So you had a vision with OncoDisk and it grew and grew. And you have to allow yourself to look around for these additional opportunities, whether it's expanding into a different market, as you said, think bigger and think wider. So expanding into cardiovascular, uh, into the uh, dialysis space. I think always keeping your antennas up for those things. Bootstrapping, very important for multiple reasons you wouldn't think of, other than you know it's always painful to pay for something that doesn't have an immediate benefit. Uh, but down the road, it can put a larger stake uh, it gives you a larger stake in in the game, skin in the game. You're going to work harder, you and your partners, when you when you put some of your own money in. And beyond that, investors are going to ask if you've put money in. They want to know that you have skin in the game as well. And being able to say that you do, uh, it really makes a difference. So be aware of your own, as clinicians, be aware of your own blind spots. Uh, there's just a certain amount of depth to payment, payers, reimbursement, regulatory oversight, that will go far beyond what you understand uh, as a clinician. And you may be able to talk to it at a very high level, but investors are going to dig into this and you need to be ready and you're going to be humbled um, many times, especially through your pitches, just like you're being pimped in med school. It's just being aware of these blind spots and knowing that you don't know everything and, and, and having a team that's complimentary so they can kind of buttress you in those, in those areas. 
With that, pitches are amazing opportunities to stress test and iterate your ideas and also to really carve your pitch into something solid and something that's simplified. You referenced it, you, you, you said it was basically like speaking to patient and family sometimes. You want to speak on, on that level where you're constantly simplifying, educating, and explaining, and in some ways persuading. And that's very similar to uh, what you would do with a patient uh, and an investor. So you mentioned common investor. You, you went through your, kind of your milestones, and I thought it would be a good time just to round it out and say common investor milestones and rounds. So you mentioned, and this is the same thing I see again and again, oftentimes seed rounds. First, you bootstrap to maybe file some IP. Uh, maybe you've got a very early prototype with your bootstrapping that you and maybe a partner have, have, have built and paid for. Then you raise a seed round. That's often for more in-depth prototyping. You want to build maybe your first real prototype. You want to do some animal testing with that, often in the million-dollar range, uh, less than $2 million probably for sure. And then a Series A is often used to take that device and get it through the FDA and maybe early clinical launch, like a limited launch. You're testing it out, uh, doing some trials. And that's what an, often a Series A in medical devices is used for. And then beyond that, when you raise your Series B, you're trying to drive growth for your full commercial launch. And that's kind of the, and then it'll go on from there, you know, Series C, Series D, hopefully you don't need to go too much further, but it does happen. And it can take a long time to raise these funds. You heard uh, James, his Series A was going to be a year, nine, nine months to a year. And that's just how long it takes. You're knocking on doors, you're trying to convince people, they're going to give you feedback. And that feedback actually takes time to iterate on. If it's important, you're going to need to improve some things. Uh, and then you go back again and again, and it'll, it'll get there. It just takes time. So you always want to budget that into your, your, your actual budget. Physicians can stay in practice. Clinicians can in general. It really is a good way to keep your feet and your hands in the, in the clinical specialty. You, you'll be a better innovator because of it, you know. And you get to put food on the table. I think that's what I found is the most important thing is, you know, you can pay the bills. Uh, you may not be maxing out as, uh, your, your earning potential during these times, but there are always sacrifices with, with a startup. And, and that's one that you need to be willing, you know, to make. But you don't want to give, I don't want to say you don't want to, but I found, and as James said, it's worked out okay if you can keep your foot in the clinical realm just so you have something to fall back on uh, if things don't go well. Because startups are high risk. We were just talking with somebody, you know, uh, almost 90% of startups fail. For, and even for second-time founders, it's only a 20% success rate. So you, you always have to keep that realization uh, in mind. And, and keeping a way of earning income so that you can put food on the table is, you got to be thinking about that. you got to be thinking about the long term as well. So that's a lot of stuff. Uh, James, do you have anything to add to that? The one thing I'll add is that, okay. uh, you know, it's also very important to have support from those close to you. I wouldn't have been able to do any of this without the support of my wife being open to going down this path. And also, you know, she works as an emergency medicine doc, so... You know, that obviously provides an enormous amount of support for us and our family. And uh, I've subjected my kids to listening to my pitch a million times <laughs> uh, and, and and they still put up with it. So 
<laughs> That's awesome. I love it. They're probably they're they're tough critics. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're really looking at your regulatory strategy uh, a little closer now. Right. Well, that is great. James, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, That was fantastic. I really appreciate your clear, thoughtful experience and sharing that with us. I I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Gamwerker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Anne Dang, social media and PR by Chi Dang, and Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.